Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Claire Maldarelli. And I'm Rose Eveleth. Rose, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I'm sure many of our listeners already know, but for folks who don't, Rose is the host of an awesome show called Flash Forward. Rose, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that before we get into it? Sure, I would love to. <laughs> Flash Forward is a podcast about the future. Every episode is a different future. Some of them are likely. You know, we do things like facial recognition and antibiotic resistance. And some of the episodes are not likely, like what would happen if space pirates dragged a second moon to Earth? And each episode starts with sort of a War of the World style audio drama and then gets into reporting where I talk to experts about that future, how likely it is, how unlikely it is, what it would be like. Uh, and it's just like a fun time. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, like you said, some of the futures are, are pretty out there, which is, you know, very fun. But some of them are incredibly relevant. You did an episode about the 2020 census ages ago, and I've been thinking about it a lot <laughs> lately. <laughs> yeah. I, have, I thought you were going to cite the pandemic episode, which was also four <laughs> years ago or right. whatever it was. <laughs> there was another one I've been thinking about lately, too. Oh, now I'm blanking on it. But oh, I've been thinking about the episode about California seceding quite a lot lately. So, you know, always something to learn. Yeah, I was going to say, this sounds like all of my dreams I've been having, like all my nightmares lately during this quarantine, <laughs> all sound like episodes totally. on this show. <laughs> That's pretty much what my job is, is to take your nightmares and turn them into audio drama. <laughs> <laughs> and we love it. So thanks so much for joining us. We're really excited to hear some of the weirder stuff you've, you've picked up in your adventures as a futurologist. And so on the weirdest thing I learned this week, we start by each offering up uh, a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, crafting 
sci-fi, speculative fiction, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Claire, would you like to start with your tease? Yes, I would love to. I would like to talk about how during World War II, carrots were involved in a propaganda scheme to confuse Nazis. Wow. A humble root. <laughs> My tease. Aren't you glad it wasn't Nazis? Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, Nazis pop up a surprising amount on Weirdest Thing. I My favorite will always be the episode where I started out talking about how much Ben Franklin loved sitting around naked. And then at the end, I found surprise Nazis that I had to talk about. So here we are again. Another week, another story about Nazis. Um, <laughs> my tease is that I'm going to talk about some evasive maneuvers that some insects use their genitals to execute. I can relate deeply to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love evasive maneuvers as a term. Right. Or a group Absolutely. Of terms. And Rose, how about your tease? Sure. Mine is also actually historical, not futurologisty, although I maintain that history is an important part of the future. And so this is actually a fact that relates to a future episode of Flash Forward. In the 1990s, a Russian scientist put up a giant mirror into space to light up entire towns by reflecting the sun back down to Earth. That doesn't sound wacky at all. (laughs) (laughs) Not super villainy in any way. (laughs) Claire, I think I need to hear about carrots first. Oh, yes. I I would love to share. All right. So... First, a shout out to a good friend of mine who is also a journalist, Chelsea Harvey. She is a climate science reporter for E&E News, and she gave me this idea for the fact over a recent Zoom brunch. We were talking about what we were eating, and it turned out that we were both eating massive amounts of carrots with hummus. And she mentioned that her dad told her that there's some conspiracy theory with carrots and World War II. And that was all she knew. And I was like, oh, goodness, this is a weirdest thing episode (laughs) for sure. So I will share with you what I learned, and it will definitely change your concept of carrots forever. No doubt. It will also surprisingly make you crave carrots. Well, let me know if it does. So... (laughs) (laughs) which I don't think is like a normal thing that people crave like you watch like cooking shows about pie or pizza or whatever and then you crave it later but surprisingly I still crave carrots now after I wrote this script so shout out to the root vegetable okay we're all told to eat carrots because they're good for our eyes right that's what we've been told since we're little kids Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That somehow, if we eat enough of this root vegetable in our lifetimes, we will stave off our need for glasses and somehow acquire superhuman vision. Now, while it is true that we need vitamin A, which carrots contain, for proper eye functioning, the mechanism and story is far more complicated than simply eat more carrots, have supervision. In fact, The connection between eyesight and carrots only came about as a bizarre propaganda campaign to trick the Nazis during World War II. So here's that story and how it spread. Now, this takes us back to 1940, and the world is currently in the midst of World War II, 
Times were very tough. The Winter Olympics had just been canceled and Nazi Germany had started what became known as the Blitz, which was a bombing campaign against the United Kingdom in which Hitler's military would bomb London and other cities in England at night. One bout of these nighttime strikes would even go on for 57 consecutive days. Because these occurred at night, to make it harder for the Nazi air raiders to strategically place these air bombs, the British government essentially called for blackouts in London and other parts of the UK. So once nighttime came, they essentially enforced everyone, including store owners, businesses, households, to turn off all of their lights. Now, you might be wondering where carrots come in. Okay, I have a couple of facts to mention that will bring all of this together. First, carrots contain a ton of beta-carotene, a carotenoid that the body can convert into vitamin A. Vitamin A then enables our rotting cone cells to function properly, which allows us to see. So if someone becomes deficient in vitamin A, this can lead to an eye condition called night blindness, where people have difficulty adjusting their vision to low levels of light. Second... Back to World War II, overall, this blackout idea on Britain's part turned out to be a successful strategy. However, living in darkness every night was a hard thing for British citizens to get used to. In fact, nighttime car accidents, unsurprisingly, went up during this time. Third point, to further thwart the Nazis, the Royal Air Force had created a new secret radar technology called the Airborne Interception Radar, or AI for short which could be set up on board on airplanes and could essentially identify bombers before they made their way across the English Channel. And they started using this technology as early as 1939, but they tried their hardest to keep it a secret. If the Germans caught wind of their technology, they would likely change their tactics and the British would have to play follow-up. Fourth, and a very, very, very crucial point, carrots were cheap and abundant at a time when everything was being rationed. So... If anyone can see where all these things are going, enter the British Ministry of Agriculture. On December 22nd, 1940, the organization released a, a statement telling British citizens that if we included a sufficient quantity of carrots in our diet, the statement read, we should overcome the fairly prevalent malady of blackout blindness. So essentially, they had heard all these things from citizens saying that these blackouts are so hard on my eyes, I can't see around. And they were like, we've got it, carrots. <laughs> so even before Twitter and all this other social media sort of, you know, came about, the news still spread fairly quickly. In fact, at December 23rd, so just a day later, 1940 New York Times article had the headline, quote unquote, London urges carrot diet for blackout blindness. And in some ways, to the way news organizations are providing one-pot recipes, easy chocolate cake, and other ways to use food in your pantry during this coronavirus quarantine, Britain's Ministry of Food handed out pamphlets with recipes for things like, I'm not joking, carrot fudge, war and peace, yes, yes. And it is just as you sound. It's like carrot puree with a lot of butter and sugar. And I war like and those peace. last two things. <laughs> yeah, like I, I'm sure it tastes okay. It just I wouldn't call it fudge, probably. Right, right. Um, okay, so then you both might like this last one, then, which I was pretty skeptical of. So there's war and peace carrot pudding. Also, just to mention, steamed boil and braised carrots in case you wanted a variety of how you cook your carrots for regular meals. And then my favorite 
quote, carrots, comma, savory. Now, (laughs) (laughs) these ingredients were carrot, carrots, of course, right? Margarine, flour, milk, nutmeg, and salt all mixed together, which made it seem like it was going to be carrot cake. But then I read further into the first line of the instructions, which, which said, scrape, boil, drain, and mash the carrots into a puree. Add all of these other ingredients that I just mentioned with the puree into a well-greased basin and steam for an hour. The instructions end with, quote, the dish looks most attractive if the mixture is set in a border mold and the center is filled with cooked spinach and other green vegetables. Yeah, so that's just a little little side note on the British diet during this time to really ramp up their carrot eating. And I don't know if I'm going to be making carrots savory this weekend, but we'll see. Back to the war. So everyone is hopping on this carrot bandwagon. They're making carrots comma savory. And word is spreading around the world that carrots will give us all this superhuman vision. But here's the thing. Even in wartime Britain, vitamin A deficiency was still really rare. And remember, like I mentioned before, carrots don't really do anything and vitamin A doesn't really do anything unless you actually have a deficiency. Without a true deficiency, carrots and vitamin A are just like taking vitamin pills and peeing them out. So obviously there must have been an alternative motive at hand, and it was. It was the British government. They had this idea to promote the massive consumption of carrots. Now remember, to thwart the Nazis' nighttime bombing raids, the Royal Air Force had developed their airborne interception radar technology, or AI, that they were trying to keep top secret. It was becoming really, really successful. British pilots, known as these night fighters, were becoming increasingly successful at taking down enemy planes before they were able to bomb civilians. So it was getting even more crucial to keep this a secret. So in an attempt to conceal this secret weapon, the British government officials began telling reporters that the secret to their success was incredible night vision made possible by a carrot-rich <laughs> diet. Just an army of RNG <laughs> carrot super soldiers. Yes, exactly. It was just, it's the carrots. That's all we can say. And one story of one night fighter really turned this propaganda into a worldwide carrot craze. The news media around the world sort of latched onto this one nighttime fighter named John, quote unquote, Cat Eyes Cunningham, who had a high success rate of spotting bombers. According to a news story in the Washington Post, first later published in Atlas Obscura, on December 7th, 1941, a Washington Post article gushed about Cunningham, describing him as a 25-year-old blonde and handsome enough to make a couple movie stars worry about their jobs. The article added that Cunningham's diet would motivate parents in Great Britain and across the Atlantic to feed their children carrots. According to most historical counts, though, it's unclear and mostly probably unlikely that the Germans ever actually took this carrot idea seriously. And eventually the Nazis ended up developing their own radar systems to combat the British ones. But to this day, the idea that carrots can help your eyes had cemented itself deep in public health campaigns. And it's likely that no one has ever seriously argued with this falsehood because I don't know. I feel like there's just nothing wrong with carrots. I mean, I guess they won't give you superhuman vision, but they still are like a great fibrous vegetable and they go in many things 
I would argue they don't mix well pureed with flour, nutmeg, set with a center of I, I don't spinach. know though because I'm well because I'm thinking about like like pumpkin pie, sweet potato pie, both delicious. So now I'm like carrot cake. Why, yeah, carrot cake also delicious. So why not carrot pie in the style of a yes, pumpkin but, pie? Okay, but carrot savory has to be boiled for an hour. <laughs> It's true. It is comma savory. Is the exact <laughs> just a, title. a nice suet. British people were very into their their steamed puddings, as mm-hmm. I have learned from the Great British Bake Off. So, oh, true. Very I true. just I feel like we could improve upon carrots, comma savory, and and maybe turn it into something not altogether terrible. But should we? Another question entirely. Yeah, yeah, it's not going to give us magic night vision. So, right. What, yeah, what's True. the point? True. What's the yeah, point? So, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, this got me thinking like, what is going to be the like food of coronavirus quarantine? And I was thinking chocolate cake, but I was going to ask both of your opinions on what you think the national coronavirus mm. quarantine food could be. I mean, I have seen both big enthusiasm over sourdough bread. I did oh. finally bother to make a sourdough starter for the first time in years just because, like, I'm home and there isn't a lot of yeast to be bought. So why not? And I've seen both people enthusiastically babying and nurturing their sourdough starters. And I've also seen, like, a backlash of people being like, why am I suddenly expected to make sourdough bread? Which I, you know, I feel like it's like anything else. If you if you want to do it, do it. If not, don't. But I don't know. I do feel that sourdough is is very much in the pandemic zeitgeist. No, I love that. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, all we need now is a carrot sourdough. <laughs> oh, <laughs> really? Pureed that first. It could be it. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Sourdough, comma carrot, comma savory. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, perfect. Just boil yeah. your sourdough like a suet. A nice. Yeah, Alice and Roman, watch out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more facts. Okay, we're back. And uh, I will get into my fact, which is uh, about some evasive genital maneuvers. But I have a few things to say before we get there. So I'm going to talk about bats real quick. So bats are great hunters due in large part to their echolocation abilities. You know, they emit these incredibly loud ultrasounds and it creates their own personal sonar detection. You know, those sounds bounce off of things and back to them. And they use that to interpret where their prey is and Then you have moths, you know, another winged creature of the night. And bats and moths have been engaged in a sort of evolutionary arms race for more than 60 million years. They have played hunter and prey for that long, which is really wild to think about. But in 2009, researchers found some moths with a hitherto unknown method of getting rid of bats getting them off their tail, they could literally jam the bat signals. So it had been known for a while that certain kinds of tiger moths 
made these clicking sounds uh, with organs on their thoraxes called timbles that I saw one researcher say it was kind of like when you take a soda can and you kind of like pop the tab back and forth and it'll kind of like pop in and out. So that that is how it was described. I don't know how good that description is, but they are tiny little organs that flex and make noise. And so the generally accepted theory was that these noises probably just taught bats to recognize tiger moths because the moths are also really bitter tasting, which, of course, is another thing that they've clearly evolved as a defense mechanism. Because if your predator takes a bite out of you and you taste real bad, they probably won't want to eat that same thing again. So the thinking was that a bat would take a bite out of a tiger moth and then it would come to associate this very horrible taste with the uh, sound of their clicking. So then they would avoid other similar sounding moths in the future. So not super useful for like that one individual moth, but great for the species and similar species. And there were some researchers over the last couple of decades who were like, what if something else is going on? What if these noises are actually interfering with the bat's sonar? But it just wasn't widely uh, accepted. So in 2009, there was this study that that really looked really analytically at this clicking. Basically, they set out saying, okay, so if the case is that the clicking just teaches bats to avoid these bitter tasting moths, then what we should see happen is that the first time a bat encounters these clicking moths, it wouldn't bother them at all. They would proceed as usual. They would try to eat some of them. And only after they'd successfully munched on at least one tiger moth would they come to avoid the clicking. There were also theories that held that the clicks themselves were just really annoying. And so if that were the case, you'd expect bats to avoid tiger moths entirely just not when go near them, even with no prior experience, unless the clicks weren't happening. So instead, when researchers took bats that had been raised in captivity and so had definitely never encountered tiger moths, and then they took a population of moths where some of their timbles had been removed, the bats just like tried to hunt the moths as usual. But when clicking was taking place, Regardless of their experience having previously bitten moths, they like had a harder time hunting the moths. They just had a way uh, lower rate of successfully catching them. And so the researchers realized that the super fast clicks were actually jamming the sonar. And it's just this one species they tested, Bertholdia trigona makes their clicks at a particularly high rate. It's up to 4,500 per second. And those were the moths that seemed to be jamming bat signals, whereas other ones were perhaps only annoying or perhaps only making something for the bats to associate with their nasty taste. And it was the most effective defense anyone had ever documented against bats. It caused a tenfold decrease in bat capture success. So yeah, they think that the clicks were interfering with the bat's neural processing of the echoes. And they also think that it's because this particular species has such a fast click rate that they're able to, you know, bat echolocation all happens so fast. So the argument is basically that 
the moths have to be able to react so quickly and produce their clicks so quickly. Otherwise, they will miss the opportunity to jam the signal of the bat that is trying to find them. They have to hear the bat, you know, shrieking at them. They have to instantly start clicking and produce enough clicks to interfere with the returning echolocation signals. So that was obviously really cool. And for a brief period, that tiger moth got to enjoy being the only moth known to do this. But then in 2013, that all changed with the hawk moth. And dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so there are actually three known species of hawk moth now that have been found to emit ultrasound clicks that have the same kind of results that, you know, they keep bats from being able to hunt them successfully. And unlike the tiger moth that has these special pieces of their body on their thorax, the hawk moths seem to do it by rapidly moving their genitals. So the males were seen very quickly grading these stiff scales that are on their claspers. So that's what they usually use to grab females during mating. And they use these scales uh, to rub against their abdomen and make the clicking. And females also seem to uh, pull part of their genitalia inwards to make their genital scales rub against their abdomens. Also super effective and yeah, it, it jams the sonar, which is just so cool to me. And also the second study that found, you know, the three species of hawk moths composed kind of a, a family tree uh, to trace back the evolution of this trait. And they found that it evolved separately between the hawk moths and the tiger moths, but really close in time. Basically, the tiger moths evolved it like just after they had kind of broken off from where hawk moths would have been. And it was more than 20 million years ago, so it's probably way more common than we thought. It would be surprising if there weren't other moth species that can do this. And one other fact I learned while researching this that is related and just really fascinated me. It had never, I never thought about it. So bats also practice self-jamming because when they let out the noises they use for echolocation, they're incredibly loud. And so to avoid deafening themselves, um, they have this muscle in their middle ear that clamps down on bones called ossicles that usually act to actually amplify sounds. But when the muscles clamp down, it dampens the intensity of uh, whatever they're hearing at the time. So as they're letting out the sounds that they use for echolocation, they dampen their own hearing, but then they have to really quickly be able to release that muscle because they have to hear the returning sounds from their echolocating targets. So yeah, it's really cool to me that they have this like super precise internal mechanism for not going deaf when they shriek at things in the dark. And um, it's also super cool that these moths have figured out how to interrupt it. And like I said, this is all relatively recent. I mean, the earlier study was still just about a decade ago. So I think we have a lot left to learn about how uh, moths evade their predators and 
how animals might have evolved to fight back against echolocation. Do the hawk moths do it more effectively than other moths? Like, are they the superior moths? (laughs) I I don't think we have enough data to compare (laughs) tiger moth and hawk moth uh, efficacy. Fair. So that's... I have uh, a more lowbrow question. Oh, please, go ahead. Do you think that it feels good for the hawk moth? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean... I've never been a hawk moth, but I mean, I hope it does, I guess. Like, that would be nice for them. It's like a win-win, right? Yeah. Doing good, avoiding right. predators, just like I feel like having the a bat, great life. The bats would like, can you imagine if your like nemesis had a way of always beating you and they also like got off on it? That would, um, yeah, that would make me really sure hate them more. that's a James more. Bond movie. Yeah. <laughs> Jamming the bat signal with your oh, drum. Man. Um, hawk woman, hawk moth woman, ooh, hawk in. moth woman. Mm, Cast yeah, me now, Hollywood. I'm free. I have no plans. <laughs> Excellent. All right, we'll take another quick break, and then we'll be back with one more fact. Okay, we're back, and uh, Rose, it's time to hear about mad scientists mirror stuff yeah (laughs) so i i am uh currently working on a book for flash forward and i was doing some reading for a chapter about a future in which we do not need to sleep um there's some sort of drug or genetic engineering that makes it such that humans don't have to sleep anymore and what would that be like but there's a book called 24 7 by jonathan crary which is super interesting it's basically a sort of sociological look at capitalism and sleep and sort of the theft of our time by bosses, et cetera, et cetera. But he sort of has this like aside in the book where he's like, oh, yeah. And by the way, in the 90s, this Russian scientist put up this big giant mirror like moving on. And I was like, um, excuse me, <laughs> I need to know more about this. So the project was called Zanamia, and it was the brainchild of a Russian engineer who actually worked on Sputnik and who was an incredibly good and talented engineer. His name was uh, Viktor Siromyatnikov. I have practiced saying that many times now. I was going to say, um, that's really, you know. Thank you. Rolled off the tongue. I, I believe it. I believe that's how yeah, it's pronounced. Good. Excellent. I hope I hope that's how it's pronounced. No, I did actually check with people who speak Russian. So he worked on Sputnik. He also actually is the person who came up with the mechanism that we still use today that allows spacecraft to link up with one another. So if you have two spacecraft that need to actually sort of like dock that docking mechanism, he invented it. It's still it still works. I think it has had no failures at this point. It's like this incredibly good mechanism. So he's sort of famous was sort of famous in the late 80s in Russia because he was, you know, working on these things. He was well known as this really great engineer. And what he really wanted to work on after working on Sputnik and these other things was a solar sail. So this idea that you could use the power of the sun to generate energy and propel spacecraft um, so you don't have to equip them with fuel, which is very heavy, etc. So he was like, sweet, next thing, I want to do the solar sail. His colleagues were like, no, 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 we have a different project. What we need to do now is sort of turn our attention to helping the Soviet people be more productive, which is a very Soviet kind of thing to be having your engineers working on. (laughs) Um, And so he basically came up with a compromise where he was like, I really want to be thinking about solar sails and sort of the sun and how we might unfurl large sheets in space. So what I'm going to do is basically design a giant reflector that goes up and direct sunlight back down to Earth, basically like a big giant space light. So you would put it up, 
it would unfurl in these big panels and it would be a light that reflects the sun back down and can light up an entire city, even in the dead of night. Right. This is the idea. And he's working on it. The Soviet Union fails. He continues to work on it. This becomes his sort of passion project. He talks about it to the media. The Moscow Times thinks this is like the coolest thing ever. Almost every story actually at the time, uh, and this is now the early 90s, both Moscow Times, any of the Russian papers, but also when it got covered in the New York Times, all the Russians constantly talk about how bad and long the winters are and like they will do anything to not have those and so you know his his quote to the moscow times is like think of what it will mean for the future of mankind and then he says no more electricity bills no more long dark winters those are like the two main things that he's like thinking about and so you know this idea right you could have this satellite you didn't wouldn't have to wire up you know rural parts of the country where you might want to put factories you could just beam light down to them and of course after the soviet union collapses he he does not have quite as much funding and the materials that he once had, but he sort of continues to work on this. A lot of people working on this project volunteered their time. Like this was the sort of like bootlegged thing. And the project was called Zanamia and it went up the first sort of test version of this. So they had three, they had a plan for sort of three stages, a test one, a 65 foot one, and then an 82 foot one, and then a 230 foot one. So they were kind of going to work their way up. And then the big like final version of this was supposed to be a 656 foot wide space mirror installation that would go up into space. Obviously, you know, without as many resources, they sort of had to put up a test version that wasn't quite as well designed or as well constructed as they wanted, but they did actually put it up. So on February 4th, 1992, they did in fact unfurl the wings of a test version of the satellite out in space. And it did work basically it wasn't quite as impressive as you're probably imagining where like this big bright light gets beamed down because it was pretty small and also it was cloudy that day which is a small wrinkle in the plan <laughs> um and it basically was the light this uh, the same amount of light as a full moon but he had proved the concept right so he was like okay clearly we can do this we can put it up we can unfurl the things and it will reflect light to earth if we could make it bigger and better it could do the thing that i am saying now at this point february 1992 he puts up this thing into space and all of the astronomers around the world are like, uh, excuse me, <laughs> hold on, uh, what exactly are you doing? Because, you know, putting a giant beam in the sky is not great for astronomy, it turns sure. out. We're actually seeing a similar conversation happening right now, RE Starlink, right? That like right. they're putting up all yeah. the satellites and astronomers are really worried that it's going to ruin their observations. Imagine like Starlink, but instead of it just sort of happens to be shiny because it's satellite, the entire point of this is to be shiny. <laughs> <laughs> like that is the whole thing. And so people, astronomers are like, excuse me, I'm sorry, like we need to talk about this. Biologists and ecologists are also kind of like, this is not a good idea. We kind of it's sort of the very early stages of kind of having a field of light pollution research uh -huh. right um, in mm -hmm. the early 90s you know people have known that light is bad for animals since the 1800s the first telegraph wires go up and they see start to see birds circling them circling the lights on them and literally dropping dead of exhaustion and so in ornithology journals in the 1800s you have people sort of noticing this so it's not new but the early 90s is really when that field starts to really kind of solidify as an actual kind of discipline so you have these people saying like hey this is not a good idea, right? And then also uh -huh. you have sort of like workers' rights advocates being like, I don't know, maybe maybe darkness <laughs> is good so we could sleep sometimes. <laughs> you know, like the idea that you should just work literally all the time is maybe not great. The Russian press is 
covering it very differently. So the New York Times has this actually great piece. And if you one of the I should shout out one of the really great pieces to read about this is on Vice by Brian Merchant. And there's some really cool pictures of like the sketches and the way that this looks and the sort of diagrams and and then how it actually looked. But the Russian press is super excited. They're like, yes, no more long winters. <laughs> um, they in 1998, they ran a story with the headline Russian space scientists seek eternal light, which is like very <laughs> cool. So again, they're like, really down. They're very excited. And so even though a lot of astronomers and ecologists and biologists are sort of trying to convince him to stop and trying to convince people to not let him do this, Serum Yatnikov continues on. He builds the next version of it. So Xenomia 2.5 goes up February 5th, 1999. It goes up to the space station Mir, and they are going to sort of really show that this could work and really beam light down to Earth. Unfortunately, as they were sort of shoving the, it's sort of folded up and then you shove it out and then you unfurl it, right? But mm-hmm. as they were sort of shoving it out of mirror, one of the mirrors got caught on an antenna and ripped. And so it sort of like didn't work, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on <laughs> who you are. <laughs> and that sort of was a failure. It ends up burning up on reentry. And at that point, there is no more funding for Serum Yatnikov and his team. And basically the project kind of dies. But it was a sort of moment where, you know, he was saying all these things about how, listen, like, we're going to save all this money on power. We're going to be able to, you know, not have to wire out to really rural places or even just regular cities. You know, we're going to be able to solve the problem of lighting poverty, right, which is something that people talk about where lots of people in the world don't have the privilege of being able to complain about light pollution because Mm -hmm. they do not have lights. Mm -hmm. And so if you could just sort of like turn this big light on in space and direct it to a place, you could solve that problem without having to run electrical cables and get people lights and have them pay for power. And, you know, there's now the conversation about climate change and the way we use energy. And so his idea was like, no, we should just put these lights up in space and just beam them down and just light light up entire cities this way, which sort of like makes some sense if you don't think about some of the other pieces of it. <laughs> sure. Um, but that was sort of his, his, unfortunately, his legacy is people now remember him as the guy who did this weird space mirror instead of the guy who invented the docking system that we use for all of our you know, space docking. But that's sort of what happened. And it, it reminded me of, again, like Starlink, where all these astronomers are sort of waving their arms, being like, no, 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 hold on, wait a second. Like, you can't just do this. And much like then, they're also talking about how most astronomers aren't consulted when there are launches into space because most of the time they don't need to know what's going up. It doesn't really impact them. So one of the things that Elon Musk has said is like, look, you know, we applied for these permits. Like this has been, there was a public comment period. Like why didn't you say something when there was this opportunity to express these concerns? And a lot of, especially ground-based astronomers were like, we don't, look at the launch lists. It doesn't it doesn't impact us 99% of the time. And this was the same case where, you know, Seremyatnikov was able to put this thing up and then all these astronomers and people on the ground were like, hold on, (laughs) no one asked us about this. Um, And it sort of like illustrates some of the disconnects between some of these fields that Mm. I think many of us might assume are connected, right? Like astronomers on the ground versus people who are putting rockets up into space. Like you might think that they would know what's happening in the other field, but they don't because actually those are quite different disciplines in general. And so they don't always know what's happening. So it was sort of an interesting parallel to the conversation we're having now about the future of the night sky and the future of light pollution in space and the future of light pollution on the 
ground. And the episode that this sort of fact appears in for Flash Forward is one about a future in which we don't have any more darkness. Oh. Um, and we just sort of completely lose the the fight um, against light pollution and sort of what that looks like. So that's my fact. Ooh, wow. I'm looking forward to that episode and terrified about it. Um. Yeah. It'll be fun. <laughs> it's not going to be good, though. <laughs> like, we should turn our lights off. <laughs> I know. I was like, yeah. I'm looking forward to when the sun goes down just to appreciate it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm thinking about, you know, over the last few years, how much increased research and conversation there's been about the disruption of our circadian rhythms and, you know, mm-hmm. the the stress we put on our bodies and minds, even just by, you know, I, I've definitely talked to researchers who argue that just the existence of the electric light has kind of messed us up. So thinking about like the the scale we're we're talking about in terms of just beaming light on a city 24/7 uh is wild. I think if that had happened there there would be a lot of researchers very upset about it today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Right. And it is one of those things where like I think it's a great example of sometimes the ways in which engineers can try to solve a problem Mm. and in their mind have really solved the problem, right? Like, look what I've made. I've made this thing that can, you know, cut all electricity bills, can light things up for people, you know, can solve problems of sort of like access, but they don't always see the whole picture of what darkness is for. Right. Or they solve the problem sort of without thinking about the sort of like intersectional ways in which all of these fields Mm. overlap, right? Not everything is a pure engineering problem, right? (laughs) Like that is not how you should look at the world in general. And it's sort of like this interesting parallel where we have someone being like, look at this great thing I invented and people being like, oh, yay. (laughs) Please don't. Yeah. Maybe less of that. Wow. So what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? Wonderful options. I kind of love this 24-hour sunlight. Not that I, yeah, I just can't believe that it was followed through so well without people being like, oh, Maybe, you know? I just, yeah, I love it as it relates to stuff in the news today. And I love just the idea of a truly brilliant engineer, clearly based on, you know, what he accomplished, saying like, here's the solution. It never gets dark. That's it. (laughs) That's the solution. I I love the simplicity of that from a clearly brilliant mind. It's a great... Reminder to all of us to be humble about where our expertise starts and ends. Um, Rose, thank you so much for uh, coming on and for your winning fact. Um, I will say I would vote for uh, carrots, comma, savory. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a close runner up then. Uh, And listeners, don't forget to check out Flash Forward if you haven't already. Uh, You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other weirdos find the show. For more information on the stories you heard in this episode, come find us at popsi.com slash weird. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popsi.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, with editing and audio engineering by Jess Bodie. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. 
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.